Okay, Oppenheimers, it's good to have another COVID Seder. It must be a normal Seder. Okay, it's not a COVID Seder. It's a normal Seder. Die, die, This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, and this year is the second Pesach of COVID. That's actually discussed in one of the minor, lesser-known areas of the Mishnah later in the Shulchan Aruch. Well, not really, but it probably is. I mean, it, it probably is, actually. What we're doing in the Oppenheimer household this year for the second Pesach of a plague is we're trying to learn a little bit more. I mean, we're not going to be doing as much cooking. And even though my parents are all vaccinated and they're going to be able to come, it's going to be a pretty small Seder and there's going to be less prep. And I don't even know that we're going to do a second night. Don't tell anyone. So what we're doing is trying to make it a more educational year, a year where we learn a little bit more, reflect a little bit more. So we're doing a joint project. It's a project between three of the four Oppenheimer daughters, their brother, David, and unorthodox. What we're gonna do is we're going to kind of annotate a practice Seder and use it as an opportunity to learn. What do I mean by that? I think in almost every family, there's certain parts of the Seder that you either never get to and skip past, or that you just don't understand as well as you might. So I sat down with my kids and said, let's go through little bits of the Haggadah, like two weeks in advance of Passover, and let's find parts that just don't make so much sense to you. And then we will footnote them by calling Liel or Stephanie or bringing in a guest. So it's gonna be like an annotated audio Seder in which you hear us going through bits of it and the parts where we stumble a little bit, that's gonna be where we bring in a guest. And we're all gonna learn a little bit. You right along with me and my children. So I now take you to the Oppenheimer dining room table at 2 p.m. on a recent Sunday afternoon when we all gathered to work our way haphazardly through bits and pieces of the Seder. So let us now raise the first glass of wine, and who would like to say the Kiddush on the wine, Bere Prihagafen? Elizabeth. Baruch atah Adonai Elohim melech haolam, Prihagafen. Amen. All right, kids, so like every year, we have our Seder plate out. We have our shank bone, although we don't use a shank bone, we use a beet because we're vegetarians, and we have our harosid, and we have our maror. Yeah, yeah, Claire, you have a question? Yes. I mean, I know what the Seder plate looks like, but there are so many Seder plates, and they all like, kind of look the same, but like, how come they look that way? Like, why do they all like have those places and all those different things on them? Like, I just don't really get it. I think Aunt Stephanie will find the answer for us. Hello? Hey, Stephanie, it's Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? How'd you get this number? <laughs> You know, it's my little black book. It's my little my little old analog black book. So good to talk to you. So I'm sitting around at my Seder with my kids. You know them. Love them. And they had a question. We were beginning our Seder and they said, Dad, how come all Seder plates look alike? And they said, like, this isn't in Torah. You know, where did we get these special plates just for this time of year? 
And I thought you might be a good person to call because you're into objects. You're into stuff looking pretty. I love things. Yeah, you like things. And they said, okay, let's call Aunt Stephanie. So Stephanie, can, can you help us out with this? Tonda Stephanie is here to help them. I actually had a great conversation about just this topic with historian Jenna weissman Jocelyn, who graciously returned to the show and talked to us a little bit about the material culture of Passover, how we got those Seder plates, what's changed over the years, and a little bit more about just sort of like Passover and, you know, the tchotchkes that we need. I would love to hear that conversation. I want to play it for my kids. Can we play it now? Sure, why not? I am overjoyed to be here today with Jenna weissman Jocelyn. She's one of the smartest historians on American Jewish culture and a professor at the George Washington University. Welcome back to the show, Jenna. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And thanks for those kudos. So we're about to sit down at the Seder table. We're going to pass around the Seder plate. We're going to drink four cups of wine and put a special cup out for Elijah. We're going to eat matzah from a cloth matzah cover. We're going to hide the afikoman in a special afikoman bag. There's a lot of stuff associated with this holiday, and you've written and thought a ton about Jewish material culture. So I guess I want to know, like, how did we get here? How come there's so much stuff associated uh, with the Seder? Was it always like this? Yeah, I imagine it was always like this. But what's really fascinating, at least to me, and what I jokingly call one of the great conundra of American Jewish life is why the stuff doesn't quite consort with the rest of the stuff in the house. You know, like the rest of the stuff in the house is handsome and smart and up to date. And somehow the Jewish ritual objects seem to be a bit behind. And that seems to have been consistently the case. And so as a historian, as well as somebody who's a current practitioner, I'm kind of intrigued to figure out why that is and, and how did that happen and generalize like mad about our co-religionists. That's what we do on this show. So, you know, it is funny when I think of like Judaica, you're right, it doesn't really fit in with your silverware that you choose. You choose all this stuff right. and then you have like this kiddish cup that has been passed down from generations that does not look like anything else. Or you picked it up somewhere along the line. I mean, I think, you know, back in the day, people had to make do. Judaica didn't exist as a kind of separate category of home furnishings or houseware. And they also didn't have the wear withal if it did exist. And so Judaica was kind of high end and, and people just sort of made do with what they had. But now they don't have that excuse. You know, there's no excuse that we can't afford it, most of us. And so why does that behavior persist? And so I've been thinking a lot in preparation of our conversation. And in the spirit of the holiday, it occurred to me, much like there are four sons or four daughters for taxonomies or categories, I've wrestled up four categories of explanation. Perfect. So one category is American Jews don't care. <laughs> Whatever it is, it is. Uh, they're not improvising out of necessity. They're improvising out of a kind of uh, indifference. Category number two, they kind of figure that it's really not worth the expenditure. They care, but use the stuff only twice a year, sort of go all out. Why bother, really? Third category is people who knowingly, intentionally, ironically love the kind of hodgepodginess of the table. And it's a, a kind of tradition for them to use great grandma's this with Uncle Sam's that. And, and it's a way of kind of animating the family history and the traditions and the funny stories that go along with, with Uncle Sam. And then the other category is that of people who actively collect 
respect, who make a point of having their Jewish ritual objects, even down to the, the most humble of things, like the little cloth bag, the afikoman bag. They want everything to sparkle in the same way that the rest of the goodies on the table sparkle. I think that's so interesting. I mean, the matzah cover that my family has used is something that I think I made in Hebrew school. And it like says matzah and I covered it in and then there's been no need to replace it. They're sort of like, it is like it's a little bit winking. But I, there do seem to be a lot of new companies that are saying like, here's a beautiful set of candlesticks. It's ethically sourced. You use them on Shabbat. You could also keep them out. Or, you know, here's a beautiful menorah. I have a Seder plate I really loved. It's by the ceramicist Isabel Halley. And it's a beautiful plate with like smaller pinch pots on it. And you can use the pinch pots. I put jewelry in them throughout the year. And so I'm sort of like, to me, that actually makes me excited about the holidays in a new way because I can say I have this beautiful Seder plate. It's not just like this silver, you know, it's not what you are imagining. And in a way, it's allowing me to create my own new tradition. There have been great efforts, really fantastic efforts. Let's say as early as pre-World War One, when a gentleman by the name of Boris Schatz had grand ideas to regenerate the Jews, not just economically, but aesthetically by creating a school of arts and crafts in Jerusalem that would train people in the fine arts and then produce all sorts of wondrous things influenced indigenously, authentically by the flora and fauna of the Holy Land. And that was a really big draw for quite a number of years. But like everything else, Judaica has its own vogue. It falls in and out of fashion. And the stuff from Bitzalel, as it was called, at a certain point, it just sort of fell from grace and seemed kind of stodgy and old fashioned. And then a new crop comes along. And today, I think, arguably, some of the, the most exciting Judaica comes not only from young artists, but from young artists in Israel who may not necessarily be one with the culture. You know that there's a kind of subversive sly attitude towards the Shabbat candlesticks or the Seder plate. So, you know, putting it all together, uh, these things are not just inert, flat objects. They tell us a lot about who we are, what we aspire to, what our values are, how we've changed markedly over time, or maybe not. You know, something that I've always loved about Passover, which I didn't realize until my boss, Alana Newhouse, Tablet's founder, pointed it out is, Passover is the one holiday that you can you can do it at home. Like it's all home based for the majority of people, right? You can go to synagogue, of course, but it's food based, it's home based, it's deeply personal. And so I think there's something about the fact I hadn't even thought about it till we started talking. That kitschy matzah cover is Passover to me, right? It's about my family passes around the yellow. We use the yellow Haggadahs. Right. The yellow red ones. Yes. Yes. The yellow red ones. Um, now, of course, we use the tablet Haggadah, which um, of everyone course. who's listening can buy. But, you know, with that is two composition notebooks that my sister and I both had to put together in one year in Hebrew school. Each page has like a story. You know, it's, you put your own Haggadah together. And mine, of course, stops like a quarter of the way through. You could see I get bored. Like I'm, there's a lot of coloring going on in the beginning. And then I just like completely lose interest. And we just kind of laugh about it every year because, you know, I found Hebrew school deeply boring at where I was. And so I think you're right. Like it's seeing that same, those cups, it's seeing those things each year. It almost doesn't matter what they look like because I, to me, it says home, right? And and that's such an amazing part of this holiday. I think that's why we're, it's the thing you do, even if you don't really do much else Jewishly. The whole holiday is an exercise in historical awareness and in memory work. Having these family implements, the kitschier the better, is, is uh, you know a very accessible form of memory work and uh, retrieval. It's all about retrieval. You know, I don't know if you'd be so happy to see these things all year long. Um, no, definitely the fact not. That they're, right. Occasionally, they have a kind of charm, a charm of innocence, charm of kind of first impressions. And since, as you point out, Pesach is a home-centered, domestic-oriented holiday, there's quite literally room on the table, literally and metaphorically, uh, for these objects. The more homespun, the better. 
But at the other end of the spectrum, there's also a lot of room for beautiful objects and to kind of dignify the holiday and not just make it an exercise in Hebrew school products. There's a lot, a lot that can be said for a table that is resplendent or aspires towards resplendence. At its heart, there's something upsetting that American Jews historically have not lavished the same degree of, of attentiveness and warmth and embrace on their Jewish ritual objects than they do on their bone china. So, you know, if there's a plea here or if there's a kind of a cri de cour, it's uh, do it, do it, you know, find the most beautiful. You could make do. Sure, we could all make do. But why not make do in a really beautiful, creative way and, and uh, strut our stuff on the Passover table, knowing that maybe that's something that we'll pass on to the next generation. And it'll also be bound up with with our history and our patrimony, just like the stuff we now have is bound up with our history and our patrimony. There's also such a pride there, right? If your most favorite object is your beautiful Seder plate and your, your family, your kids see you put it out every year, like, this is the two days we get to use this amazing creation— that's so different. It's like, where's that old Seder plate that we've been using for 30 years? I love that. I love that idea because we're just saying, take pride in your table. It's one of those rare moments when it all comes together. Family, history, stuff, food, storytelling, fun. Wow. It's quite an amazing bit of business if you stop to think about it and, and don't go complaining about how busy it makes you be. That's such a good takeaway. Jenna Weissman-Jocelet, thank you for helping us Passover prep and thank you for making our tables and our homes that much more beautiful this Passover. Thank you for the opportunity to hold forth. It was great fun. So you heard the professor. Let's listen to Jenna Weissman-Jocelet and make our Passover tables and all of our Jewish spaces extra beautiful this year. There's so many new and exciting Judaica brands that I really, really love. This is not an ad. This is more like a public service announcement. Uh, as I said during the interview, my ceramic Seder plate is by Isabel Halley, and it is very cute. I also love the Seder plates from Judaica Standard Time, which is a new company that collaborates with artisans on updated takes on classic Judaica items. I've already told you about Via Maris, but I'm telling you about them again. They make beautiful industrial chic candlesticks and menorahs, and they just came out with a very cool stoneware Seder plate. And the beautiful Lucite mezuzah that hangs inside my apartment on a hallway doorpost so that I get to look at it all the time, that's from the Apolloy Collection, which is run by two Jewish sisters. They just debuted a Seder plate, matzah cover, and afi komen bag. You can find links to all of these great brands in our show notes. Again, not an ad, just things I'm excited about and things that can make your Jewish home even more beautiful. Tanta Stephanie, thank you so much for checking in with historian Jenna Weissman Jocelyn. Kids, did that did that answer your questions? <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, guys, let's move along now. I'm feeling good. I've had a couple glasses of wine, and here we are. We're coming to the next part. Oh, this is a favorite part of mine. It's the one about the four sons: the wise son, the simple son, the son who doesn't know how to ask, that other son. All right, there's a lot of problems with this, okay? Yes, Elizabeth, what, what are you talking about? First of all, it is very sexist how it's only the four sons. I'm assuming that there is probably daughters as well, and if not, then they can choose another family. Second of all, why do they have to be stuck in their role? The son who doesn't know how to ask, well, maybe he just doesn't know how to ask questions about the Seder, or maybe he could still be much smarter than the wise son in every other subject. Why does the wise son always have to be wise? Can't the wise son be stupid for once? And why can't the wicked son be nice for once? And the simple son? The simple son doesn't have to be simple, not to mention that's not really nice to call someone simple. So I do see that there's an interesting question here, right? Which is these siblings 
or sons, whatever they are, they seem to be stuck in their roles. But we know, being part of a family, that it's not like you are only one thing. It's not as if you're always the simple one or the smart one or the foolish one or the one who can't ask. All of you at various times can't ask or can ask. I mean, we're not just one thing. So I have an idea. Let's call someone who can talk to us about sibling relations. You know who works with families and does therapy with them and helps siblings and parents sort out their relationships? Aunt Jessica. That's right, Aunt Jessica Grogan, Austin, Texas's leading family and couples counselor. Not to mention she has a family of her own. Oh. Good job, David. Let's give Auntie Jessica a ring. Hello? Auntie Jessica? Hey, how's it going? It's going really, really well. We are in the middle of a little Seder here at our house, and we're at a part of the Haggadah where we have a question about family dynamics and sibling relations. Do you think you could help us with this? Sure. Awesome. As you know, the Seder has this moment where they say that there are four sons, and now sometimes people will say four children around the table. There's the wise son, there's the wicked or evil son, there's the simple son. And finally, there's the son or the child who doesn't even know how to ask the question. And for hundreds of years, we've been debating what exactly are these sons and what does it mean? And it occurred to me that what they're talking about is the way that children get slotted into roles in a family. And so I guess I'm curious, you know, you have three kids, we have a bunch of kids. When you see kids in a family, either in your own household or in your practice, are there ways in which we tend to like assign people roles and then just never think of them outside of those boxes? Yeah, I think the more that we give children roles, the more they adopt those roles and come to think of them as their identity. So it's almost something I think in effective parenting that we try to be careful about that we can kind of fall into stories about children that are like, you know, that the oldest is the most responsible and then they kind of develop that feeling, but maybe they also have the most anxiety because they have the most responsibility or that the youngest one is sweet and becomes a caretaker or a peacemaker or the middle one is competitive because they're squeezed. So that there's some way that those stories, I mean, often form around birth order, but could form around some personality trait. And that I think also in big families, you sometimes feel like roles get taken up and then they're no longer available by the time you come along. Oh, interesting. So if someone, if there's already a most responsible one, if the eldest is the responsible one who does everything, then child two or three might actually not think of themselves as responsible because that role is taken. Right. They might decide to be more difficult to get attention or to be the rebel, or they have to find a way to kind of stand out that's separate from that because they might fear that they won't do it as well. So what about the fact that actually people do have personality traits? I mean, is there a way to think of a child as, oh, you're so responsible or you're so athletic or you're so courageous because that happens to be something that's true about them and that they value about themselves? Is there a way to honor that without essentializing the child or making it their private possession so that only they can have that role? I mean, I think the idea behind it, one is the kind of wisdom in sibling rivalry literature is not to make them compare them too much, right? So not to say, well, your sister's good at this and your brother's good at this, right? So that you, you reinforce that narrative. So you can praise a child and affirm that they're good at something, but then that you make sure that there's no direct comparison. And also, you know, that you talk about it more as behavioral rather than essential, Right. That there's some way that we can talk about, well, the truth about someone is this, like at their core, 
they're responsible or something rather than thinking that it's a kind of potentially nurtured and learned behavior that others could also nurture and learn. As somebody who sees lots of families, to what extent do you think that these things can be nurtured and learned? Are there certain traits that seem just really, really inboard? I mean, I think about myself and my own lack of executive function. <laughs> so, you know, the, the way that I can't really sequence anything and that I forget stuff all the time and that I'm scattered. But you have other siblings who have that too. <laughs> well, exactly. It's not like <laughs> it's not like your husband, my brother, dad took the hyper-responsible, hyper-competent role. I don't think any of us got that role. I mean, I don't think that I don't have a sense of direction because Jonathan, who came seven and a half years after me, is really good at direction. I think I just was born and didn't have one. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, to what extent do you think that can everything be nurtured and learned or do we kind of also just have traits? The wisdom is that it's a combination, nature-nurture. But I think that there's a way that we can amplify nature and the way that it's expressed by how we talk about it, how we reinforce it, right? So if you had been told your whole life that you're capable of having a good sense of direction or, you know, something like that, you might have a slightly different outcome. <laughs> you know, that there's something about hearing over time how terrible your sense of direction is that you begin to underfunction in that role and that those around you probably compensate for you. It's actually kind of mind blowing. Like the idea that maybe if my mom and dad had taught me that I could have a good sense of direction, that maybe mine would be slightly better, would actually have been transformative for me. I don't know if it's true, but I like to think that that's true because certainly my bad sense of direction doesn't serve me well. Well, and I think there's a lot in family therapy about, you know, I hear a lot of this is just the way I am or this is, you know, how I've always been or things like that. And I think even if there's a piece of that that's true, it's not generally a helpful way to think about ourselves as these essential characteristics that aren't subject to revision or growth or change. So if you had a family, take it right back to the Passover story. If you had a family come in and was sitting in your office and let's say there were four kids and the mother or father pretty quickly was just describing the kids in a really brusque way and said, well, Timmy here, he's the, the simple one. And Joey here, he's the one who doesn't even ask the questions and just gave you their essential traits. What strategies would you give them or how would you work with them to, to move them away from essentializing their children that way? One of the first things I would ask is, what do you think would change if you stop thinking about the kids this way. You know, if you kind of took away the categories for understanding the kids' roles in the family. So is the idea there that treating the children as these inherent, essential, categorizable beings is serving some need for the parents? Yeah, I think it's a way we make order in the world by having categories and understanding. I mean, we do this in our marriages. We do this with our kids, things like that. You know, like you want to understand where people's strengths are and what can be expected of them. And, and so if you're the clumsy one who breaks all the dishes, you're not going to be asked to do the dishes. You'll do something else that you can't break. And then you're going to be less competent even than average at doing the dishes where maybe you didn't need to be. So interesting. All right. Well, let us hope for next year, 5782, Let's hope that we all maybe honor our kids a little bit more for who they could be rather than what we assume they are. Would that be a, would that be a good wish? That sounds like a good plan. All right. Yeah. I'm going to do my best. Auntie Jessica Grogan, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. All right, guys. The time for the third glass of wine. Um, Why is it always wine? I don't even like wine. Anna, what do you think it should be? I don't know, mango tango. You think it should be Paul Newman's orange mango tango juice? Well, it's good. At least it's not as bad as wine. Well, you know, I think there's some like historical reasons why it's wine, but I agree. We should understand better. So kids, as it happens, my friend Adam Teeter, who runs the Wine and Spirits website, Vine Pair, left me a voicemail about just this question yesterday. 
one of the most amazing things about wine and what makes it so special is it's one of the only substances on earth that can deliver flavors and aromas that are not of what it was made from. To be clear about this, when you have a chocolate stout beer, right? It's very common that the brewer used cocoa nibs or malted barley that was malted with cocoa, things like that, in order to create those flavors. Fruited beers, same kind of idea. With gin, right? We add tons of botanicals in order to give it those aromas and flavors. With wine, it's just grapes. And then this amazing thing happens during fermentation where all of these compounds are released that create these incredible flavors and aromas that then we connect back to memory. And so when we go to actually drink wine and consume wine, the first thing we do is we smell it. And when we smell wine, this really crazy thing is happening. We have the olfactory bulb, which is the front of our brain. It actually sits, you can touch it, right? It's right at the top of the bridge of your nose, sort of right between your eyebrows. That's where your olfactory bulb sits. And your olfactory bulb is like your smell bank. It connects directly to your memories. It's what allows you to walk into a home and think that you smell your grandmother, those kinds of memories. And it's what completely plays into the consumption of wine. When we smell wine, we start accessing that smell bank and we start bringing up all of these memories of things that we've consumed in the past. That's why when we smell and taste wine, we all have different experiences with the same beverage because we all have different memories. When I smell a wine, I may smell strawberries and raspberries. Or a better example for me is when I smell white wine, right? So I grew up in the South and I was surrounded by honeysuckles in the spring. It's actually perfect for Passover, right? It's when they were blooming. And so I smell honeysuckle a lot in wine. Now, if you did not grow up in the South or in another place where honeysuckle is a major flower that blooms and you have that memory of like going out to the bushes and picking the honeysuckle off the bush and pulling the flower apart and sort of licking the juice inside the flower to get that sort of honeyed flavor, you don't have that memory. If you've never had an experience with a certain aroma, if you don't have a deep tied memory to that aroma, you won't be able to call it up. There's all these sort of hacks that professional sommeliers use where they go to grocery stores and walk through the produce section and smell apples and pears just to be able to ace their blind tasting exams. But for the most part, they don't have the deep connections with the aromas that they do with the aromas that speak to them of family, of childhood, of you know, of friends, of relationships. And those are the smells for me when I smell wine that are very much the clearest, right? So it always connects me back to where I was. So for me, for example, <laughs> there's a lot of wines that I actually smell. This is going to be crazy because so one of the biggest aromas that we, we tease people about is grapes, right? Because obviously it smells like grapes. Wine's made from grapes. But There are certain wines I smell that I'm like, this smells like Manischewitz. This smells like what I'm used to that was my first wine experience, which was Concord grapes. And I smell that a lot in, you know, really fruity red wines. And it's it's really crazy. And I guarantee you there's a lot of people in the wine world that have not had Manischewitz before who are like, this guy is nuts. But those are memories that I have tied to sitting around the Passover table and consuming wine. I mean, as you're sitting down, you're consuming wine in a way that allows you to remember all of these incredible moments you've had in your life. And that's why actually for me with Passover, I really like to do four different bottles of wine. I like to change throughout the meal what the wines are so that I can access different memories and have different experiences. So I like to sort of start Passover with like a white wine 
or even a sparkling because, you know, whether you keep kosher or not, they make kosher and non-kosher, obviously, sparkling wines. And then move through the dinner to the end where I'm either having a really full-bodied red and I'm ready to sing all of the songs or even a dessert wine that also brings up different memories and pairs really great with my wife's late grandmother's model bread. But those are the sort of things that I like to, to think about and allow me to have all these different experiences and then share those experiences with everyone around the table. All right. So having done wine, we thought we might go on to that other comestible, that other thing that we live with for a week, matzah. And there's a guy, his name is Rabbi Gabi Weinberg. He's the senior director at the B'nai Zion Foundation. And he wrote a piece that's coming to tablet next week. You should all look out for it. It's about matzah. But we decided to give you a little preview. So we talked to Rabbi Weinberg about how for some families, there's a little more significance to the matzah than for others. My grandfather, Zeta, had a difficult childhood. He lost his mother when he was 10 and lost his father before he graduated college. Before his second parental loss, his father remarried. When his stepmother joined the family, she offered Zeta four boxes filled with the sum total of his late mother's earthly possessions. If he didn't take them, she would throw them away. And so Zeta kept the boxes, hoping maybe that if he did, he'd keep his mother's memory alive. Before long, he started collecting other things too. He kept pictures and report cards, anything he could find that captured a moment in time. Perhaps a way to save those moments in time so they wouldn't disappear. Growing up, I was confused by Zeta's extensive homemade archives, but I loved and admired them too. I loved sitting on the couch as he pulled old photos and artifacts, recalling to any willing listener when, where, and how he got them. To my mind, this treasure trove of memories had a crown jewel. It was, well, I'll let Zeta tell it. Hi, Bob and Zeta, are you there? Yes, we're here. Zeta, why did you save the Schatzer matzah receipts? They were just interesting to me as per I was buying for the whole family. Going back, we're married 64 years. And ever since I'm married, I am buying from Schatzer matzah on Cortelia Road in Brooklyn. When I first started, I paid them cash, but they took checks later on also as the family grew. It was just interesting to have. To compare from one year to the next, the prices. That's right. Over 60 years of matzah receipts. They weren't just some economics research project. They were a way to imagine what life, Zeta's life, must have been all those years ago. It was a promise that while so much about life was impermanent and out of our control, we weren't helpless. We still had the literal record. We had the receipts. So of course, I wanted to see these receipts. I wanted to study them, examine them, hold them in my hand. I asked Zeta if he'd help me find the collection, and he invited me over to embark on the search. We went down to his basement, into the room where he keeps his archive. It's dimly lit by upholstering incandescent bulb and contains two generations of folding chairs that we bring up twice a year for Sukkot and Passover. Behind the chairs, stacked in no apparent order, lay the storied shelves of Zeta's archive. On the first shelf are disintegrating copies of the New York Times. The archive has expanded to include moments beyond family celebrations. You've got the 20th century's greatest hits, the moon landing, JFK's assassination, and the founding of the state of Israel, but no stack of receipts. On the other shelf, I see a 1940 issue of Time magazine, but still, no receipts. 
each historic broadside dustier than the next, yellowing and decomposing like memories. Maybe those receipts are merely a legend. We return to Zeta's office. Perhaps these receipts are resting in one of his drawers or standing upright next to a copy of my mom's report card. No luck. For a while there, I was disappointed, feeling deprived of my family heirloom, feeling as if it was my own memory taken away from me. But then I stop and think it over. I may not have the receipts, but I still have my Zeta here to tell me about his life. And he has me, better proof than any receipt that our family is thriving. So I asked him how he feels about it. The greatest thing on earth is family, 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 family. And after family comes family. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Guys, I just have to say it's so good being here for the Seder yet again because I just kind of know that every year, even if we don't have the whole family together for every night of, of Hanukkah... I have to interrupt you. So, listen. This is just not right. If Passover does not seem like that important of a holiday, 
First of all, on Hanukkah, we get presents. Lots of presents, even though you think we should give them to charity. On Rosh Hashanah, it's the start of the new year, basically like January 1st of Judaism. And on Yom Kippur, we fast and we have to atone. So why is Passover the one where we have all our family over and we have a big feast when it's not as important as the other holidays? You know, that's a good question. I don't really have a good answer for you. Do you think Uncle Liel would know? Can we do our Uncle Liel noise? Waddy wop and howdy do. Yeehaw! Hello? Hey, Uncle Liel, it's Mark calling. How you doing? How'd you get this number? <laughs> because my carrier pigeon died. What do you mean how to get this number? You're Uncle Liel. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing okay. I'm sitting here at my Passover Seder with little ops, one through five, with the basketball team. And we were talking about why it is that of all the Jewish holidays, why is it that Passover, that Pesach, seems to be the holiday where we're most likely to get together as a family, invite people over, and really, really do it up. And I said, you know who would know? You know who loves Passover? Who loves cooking for Passover? Who loves hosting Seder? You know who hates leavened bread? Uncle Liel. And they said, let's give him a call. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, why is this the big one? This is something I've often wondered about because there are days that seem kind of like more awe-inspiring and it's the whole month of Tishrei with so much going on. And yet this, this one seems to be at the core of things. It does. I love Pesach and I have a lot of thoughts about this, but when I need... Real wisdom, real clarity, real rabbinic hashgacha, real supervision. I call my friend and my teacher, Rabbi David Bashevkin. Can we listen? I want to play this for my kids. Let's do it. Why is this the central holiday of our tradition? Why a holiday starring a relatively newcomer to the Bible, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses? I mean, we've had some great guys and gals before. We had Avraham, Mitzchak, and Yaakov. We had Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. The patriarchs, the matriarchs, each one of them, a miraculous figure. I mean, each one of them seems to merit his or her own holiday. And yet, here we are with our seminal celebration, with our great festivity, coming late in the game, late in the biblical telling. I wonder why that is. Sit back, recline to the left, drink some wine, because you have the pleasure of meeting Rabbi David Bashevkin. Hello. Liel, what an absolute joy. And I, anytime I speak to you, I'm always reclining and always a little bit to the left. <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that. But now tell us, Rabbi Bashevkin, what's the deal with Passover? Why is this holiday so important? And why don't we have other holidays pertaining to, say, the creation of the world or Noah and his ark? Such seminal moments in, in the history of our people, such seminal figures. Why don't they get a holiday and this tongue-tied newcomer, Moses, does? It's really a foundational question, and I think the answer has a simplistic beauty to it and really gets to the heart of what Passover is celebrating. Passover is the celebration of the creation of Jewish peoplehood. What Passover is symbolizing is the formation of of the Jewish nation. Before Passover, we had some amazing figures and all the stories that precede the story of the Exodus in the Bible, whether it was Noah and whether it was the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Rachel, Leah, all of those amazing patriarchs and matriarchs that we've already seen in the Bible. What distinguishes them from the story of Exodus is that those previous stories are stories of individuals. 
This is the first story, not of individuals, but of a nation. This is the moment in which individual Jews sort of fade to the background and the Jewish people is born. Exactly. And Jewish peoplehood is kind of this like metaphysical entity unto itself. And this is its creation story. And this is almost its childhood. Like if you walk into anybody's home and you see pictures of little children on the wall, I know in my parents' home, you'll always notice that the pictures on the wall are always of the kids when they're kind of in the childhood stages. And then at some point, the pictures, maybe they get a little less frequent. Maybe you'll have a graduation photo here and there. Maybe you'll have a big event. But most of the pictures and the memorabilia that we save and treasure are those artifacts that we have from those formative childhood years. Back when we were charming and full of promise. Exactly. And the reason why Passover and the story of the Exodus is this recurring theme, really not just on Passover, but throughout the year, we mention it over and over again in ritual, is because these are our childhood photos. But it's not the childhood of an individual. It's the childhood of our very nation. Now, that strikes me as having a deep connection also to this mitzvah, to this commandment that in each generation, we should see ourselves as if we ourselves walked out of Egypt, right? Because this story of our collective rebirth is not just a story that happened thousands of years ago. It's a story that happens to our people every year when we all congregate and retell the story of the Exodus, isn't it? Exactly. And I think about the enduring nature of childhood. You know, I always ask myself, what years in a person's life have the most long-lasting, enduring effect in shaping their personality? And look, I'm not a child psychologist, and I can't say this definitively, but I know in my own life, when my intuitive, instinctive emotions surface, they're usually the feelings of joy, inadequacy, anxiety that were shaped in those early childhood years. And the reason why we have this sense of like, look as if you are leaving now is because childhood is something that remains with you for the rest of your life. All of us have years that are important, and every year and every moment of a person's life is important. But there's a way that childhood shapes who you are decades later, even at the end of a person's life, that the aspect of Passover as our national childhood, as our national birth, and reliving that every year mirrors the very weight and nature that childhood actually plays out in our individual lives. And we don't just mean this theoretically, do we? I mean, that the Passover story is filled with all these kinds of really, really special rituals that only happen on Passover precisely to remind us that we have the obligation and the possibility of reinventing ourselves, of being reborn, if you will, of reconstituting ourselves as part of the Jewish people every year. Like, tell us, for example, about that perhaps most mysterious object on the Seder plate, the shank bone, and what it represents and how it is such a special manifestation of, of exactly this idea of our ability to be reborn every time anew. It's so interesting. The shank bone is in memory for the sacrificial lamb, what's known in Hebrew as the Korban Pesach, which was the sacrificial lamb that was brought every year and was really the center of the Passover experience. And this is a really unique sacrifice because 
it's not quite a communal sacrifice that was used to be brought in the temple that individuals weren't able to eat and partake of on their own. And it's not quite an individual sacrifice. What makes the Korban Pesach, the sacrificial lamb, so unique is that it was the ritual through which we became a community. It wasn't a communal sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that forged our very peoplehood. And that's why it is such a central place in our residual memory. And it's the only sacrifice that we commemorate through ritual. There were dozens of sacrifices that were brought in the temple. The only one that we still commemorate through ritual, not just speak out in words and mention in prayers, but through ritual is the Korban Pesach, the sacrificial lamb. Because again, it was through this sacrifice that was so unique, it had to be brought together in groups of people. You didn't bring it alone. You brought together almost as families coming together because we we reminded ourselves of that enduring childhood and how we need to constantly reconstitute ourselves as a Jewish community and as a Jewish nation. Now, you taught me one other very interesting thing about Passover, which is that so great is the desire to make sure that everyone feels part of this moment of annual national rebirth, that Passover is in fact the only Jewish holiday that gets a do-over? Passover is the one holiday where if you are unable to bring the sacrifice in the times of the temple, there was a makeup date, there was a rain date that you were allowed to do it again. I mean, I always think of myself, imagine, you know, you miss Hanukkah and you said, oh man, I forgot to light the the menorah for all eight days. There's no makeup date. You don't have a second Hanukkah. If you miss Yom Kippur, there's no second one that you get many, many years later. Why is there a makeup date specifically for Passover? And I think it comes back to this reminder of the enduring nature of beginnings and the enduring nature of our childhood. It's that if Passover is the reminder that we can reaccess, touch, shape, and form that childhood that always remains ever present just beneath the surface, then it's the reminder that beginnings always remain accessible. And if Passover is our beginning, then that second Passover, what's known as Pesach Sheni, the second Passover, is the reminder that we can begin again because beginnings remain ever present in our collective consciousness as the Jewish people. Rabbi Beshevkin, as we all congregate around the Seder table, either alone because of COVID or with loved ones in whatever constellation in this still very difficult time, may we always remember these wise words, this true meaning, if you will, of Passover is that it's never too late to begin again. Thank you so much for being our guest. My absolute pleasure. Guys, the Seder is winding down. We've told the story. And I have a question for you. How does this story that we tell every year on Pesach, how does it make you feel? Clara, how does the story of Passover make you feel? It just like fills me with like pride. It, Like the fact that like they were enslaved and they didn't know what to do and they just, they baked their matzah and they didn't even let it rise and they just got out of there and they kept going on even when the Egyptians got out of them. Just makes me proud to be a Jew, you know?
I think that's all true. I think it is a holiday where we think about what we're proud of. And among the things we can be proud of is how we learn through this holiday to be welcoming of others. But there are other things to be proud of. And the story of how to love ourselves as Jews and how to think about what we're called to do, it's a story that goes on. And Stephanie and Liel and I, we recently talked to someone who has been thinking about what Jewish pride means in the year 2021, because the story keeps evolving. Our next guest was born in Scotland and lives in Hong Kong. He's a Jewish author and educator, and his new book is Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People. Welcome, Ben Freeman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, Ben, in your book, you make the sort of explicit reference to Passover, to the idea that in every generation, we should stop and contemplate the eternal hatred towards us and and our eternal ability to sort of overcome it. So I want to start by hearing about you. Give us the story of your own personal exodus into great light and freedom. Wow, my exodus from Glasgow. I was born in (laughs) Glasgow, Scotland. There are about 5,000 Jews in Scotland, a very small community, but incredibly strong, incredibly Zionist. We face a lot of anti-Semitism. There's a lot of anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, but it's really a, a beautiful, strong community. And my journey, I guess, to Jewish pride and to kind of this work began with my journey to LGBTQ plus pride. As a young gay teen in the 90s and the early noughties from Glasgow, you know, there were not many Scottish gay Jewish role models, as you can imagine. So that lack of representation deeply affected me, actually, and and it really affected my mental health. So I had to embark on my own pride journey. And that led me to understand the work that goes into it. And it is work. The book is obviously one piece of this journey, but I want people to read it and then begin their own journey because that's really where mine began. And I joined Twitter in 2018 to combat Corbynism, left-wing anti-Semitism. And that was kind of my foray into this world because I've been working in the grassroots, low-key Jewish community for a very long time. But this was my kind of introduction to this kind of global Jewish activism. I want to slow you down, though, though for a second. And this is a really interesting point in your book, that the notion of gay pride and Jewish pride sort of intersected for you. And that once you started taking one seriously, you realized, well, actually, no, this is this is how the mechanism works for all portions of my identity, not just one. So was this like a sudden realization? Was this something that came to you as you were engaging in one and discovering the other? I think in terms of the Jewish pride, it was quite sudden. The major understanding I came upon with regards to LGBTQ plus pride was the shame, the trauma. It wasn't my fault. You know, I, a gay teen from Glasgow, Scotland, had done nothing wrong, but I was made to feel that I was broken, that there was something wrong with me. You know, I discussed in the book my own mental health struggles, my suicide attempts, my experience with self-harm, and that lasted for a really long time. But there was this realisation, as I said, there was like, whoa, I haven't done anything wrong. This isn't my fault. And that was what led me to embark on this journey to LGBTQ plus pride. With regards to Jewish pride, it was when I joined Twitter in 2018. And I've got to say, the British Jewish community was kind of remarkable. We love to argue. We love a good debate. We came together and we fought this common enemy. But I also saw that there were Jewish people who were very uncomfortable with speaking up, very uncomfortable with labelling what was happening. And it made me realise that all of the shame, the trauma that we as Jews feel, That's also not our fault. But unlike the LGBTQ plus community, we don't talk about it. 
the conversation about shame is very common in the LGBTQ plus community. We talk about that a lot, but we don't really talk about it in the Jewish world. And I think that's to our detriment. So will you tell us what is Jewish pride? What does Jewish pride mean to you? And I'm one of those people who say like, why do we need to be so proud? Why do we need to be so open? Like, so what is Jewish pride and why do I need more of it? So I think Jewish pride can look different to every person, right? So I'm not necessarily calling for us to be going onto the streets with big Israeli flags on floats, having kind of a Jewish Mardi Gras. I don't even know what that would look like. So that sounds amazing. Right. Yeah. Jewish, Mar Jewish Mardi Gras. I mean, Mardi Gras being Catholic, that's some serious cultural appropriation, but I mean. Well, we could call it Marty Gras. Just <laughs> yeah. a guy named Marty. No, it's, it's Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Oh my God. So I think it looks different to every person, right? But I think it's ultimately a perspective and a feeling. And I think it's rooted in three things. One is rejecting the shame of anti-Semitism because as I learned as a young gay teen, there is a difference between being shamed and being ashamed. And we can't stop the world around us from trying to shame us. You know, they've been doing it literally for millennia and we haven't been that successful in stopping them. But what we can do is stop absorbing it and stop the feelings of shame internally. We can also stop allowing the non-Jewish world to define our identity. In Britain, in early March, they had a panel on the BBC that discussed, should Jews be counted as an ethnic minority? There was one Jewish person in this panel, and what we had was five non-Jews debating Jewish identity. That's mad. That's like actually mad. And the final thing is defining Jewish identity through Jewish experience, Jewish values, and Jewish traditions. So it really does look different to everyone. You know, I have my own ways of embodying Jewish pride. I wear a kippah every day, but I don't keep kosher because that's not that important to me. I'll say Kaddish for my late father, but I'm not doing that to exalt God's name. I'm doing that because that's how I'm connecting with my father, with the wider Jewish community. So I think it can look different to everyone, but it really is about rejecting the shame that is imposed on us by the non-Jewish world. Speaking of, of the shame that you feel, one of the major things that you take to task in your book is this idea of passing. There's this popular trope in particularly progressive circles that say, well, yeah, you know, you may be a member of two persecuted minorities, gay and Jewish, but you could pass as non-Jewish. You could pass as straight, which is why you have some sort of privilege. This is a notion that you raise very early in the book in which you have absolutely no patience for, right? Tell us why. I have no patience for it because while for a period I passed as a heterosexual, although I think I passed as a heterosexual, I'm not sure everyone would agree with me, but I thought that I passed as a heterosexual, I still felt enormous shame and I still have the scars to prove it. I mean, the physical scars, the emotional scars. So I think what we need to do is widen our perspective on prejudice. And we have to understand that there's different ways to experience it. And passing, it can be a form of advantage, but it's often just another manifestation of prejudice. So I, as I said, I suffered greatly, even though I could pass. And as a Jewish person, you know, passing as a non-Jew, perhaps, I have heard what people say about Jews when they think there's not a Jewish person around. I have also seen the reaction when they find out that I'm Jewish. And I think also the notion of passing really means that we're trying to hide something. So if we break that apart and dissect it, the fact that we're trying to hide something really proves that it isn't actually a privilege. And it may help us avoid prejudice externally, but what is it doing to us internally? What is it doing to our self-esteem? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I don't think there are five Jews alive who don't have a, a split second of excitement or delight when someone says, oh, I didn't think you were Jewish. You, you don't look Jewish, right? Every mm. Jew I know thinks, oh, I don't. Well, also, it's a compliment. That's crazy that that's a compliment. It's a compliment. And we take it as a compliment. And we're proud when our relatives or significant others or whatever also pass. And it's, it's like you can't unwire it. And of course, there's a psychic cost to that, right? And what must it be to be part of a subculture 
who, you know, I'm thinking like just people who look really Anglo, who like everyone just agrees that you being the authentic you is attractive. I was gonna say it feels great, but they don't think about it because it just feels like who they are. That just must be an incredible privilege. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's not about saying every experience is the same, but it's also not about saying different experiences are more than or less than. It's one experience of many, but it is real to us. And, you know, I talk about this in the book. I talk about this categorization of anti-Semitism, the racial libel, which really has demonized how Jewish people look for a millennia. I used to want to get a nose job. I used to literally dye my hair blonde. I found on my Dropbox a picture of me, you know, 15 years old with bright blonde hair. And it's actually quite sad looking back at it because I really was like, I want to be blonde, blue eyes. and I want a small nose. And yeah, when people would say to me, oh, you don't look Jewish, I don't know you were Jewish, I would be happy about it, which is insane. So so I want to talk to you about the work because this is our Passover episode. It's the holiday that we come together to celebrate the moment we became a people and really asserted our Jewish pride. And we have this obligation to do it as individuals every year and every generation. So give us a, a little how-to. A lot of us are feeling what Stephanie so aptly described before as a sort of like, uh, do we really have to do it? A lot of us think pride equals some kind of, you know, chauvinism, flag waving, rah, rah, go BB, go everything type of situation. Give us kind of a way to think about it, a personal step one in this journey that could guide us towards freedom. Well, I think the fact that we have a holiday that celebrates our coming together, the kind of creation of our peoplehood, our nationhood is itself pretty remarkable. And that's the thing. When someone said to me, will we have our Morty Gras? I was like, well, no, because we have our Pesach, we have a Rosh Hashanah, we have our Shabbat, we have all of these times in our calendar that there are opportunities for us to celebrate our identities. And I think fundamentally, Pesach, Passover is obviously one of the most important Jewish holidays. And in, with particular regard to Zionism, you know, I know that political Zionism began as a movement in the end of the 19th century, but the Jewish connection to the land of Israel, our indigenous homeland, has existed forever. And I do think it's kind of amusing when you have anti-Zionist Jews, you know, celebrating Pesach, because you're like, you guys do know what this holiday is about, right? You know where they end up. Right. <laughs> yes, precisely. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Took a while, but they got there. Well, that's, yeah, it's like, what, it's like dot, dot, dot at the end of the film. But it's also crazy because we're starting to see them take out that phrase, L'Shanah Ba'ab Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. So what they're doing is using their modern progressive identity politics. They do not. They do. They fucking do a Seder and take out next year in Jerusalem? Yeah. That is some stone cold wrongness. It's chutzpah. It's like unbelievable. I don't even know what to say. Like, you know, don't do it is fine, but wow. (laughs) Precisely. But, you know, Pesach, I think, is a really important Jewish holiday because it is, it's the formation of us as a people. And I think that's also really important. You know, as I said, I don't keep kosher. I'm not religious. That's not what this is about. This is about people finding their own ways to Jewish pride, which is also rooted in this notion that we're a people. And because we're a people, you can have your own relationship with it. So that is kind of maybe the beautiful thing and also the complex thing about Jewish pride, because there is no one cookie cutter mold for everyone. But I do think that sitting down at the Seder and going through this dinner, this meal, this order, and I always say online, oh, it's the same time as Jews all around the world. I mean, clearly it's not the same time because I'm, you know, 13 hours ahead of you guys. But the fact that roughly within 24 hours, we're all sitting down and doing the same thing, being actively Jewish in whatever way that looks, whether we, we read the Haggadah in English or not, it doesn't matter. That's really amazing. And I think just the Jewish action, the message behind it, 
our peoplehood is incredibly inspiring. So I don't want to imply that all Scottish Jews know each other, but we have had Eve Barlow on the show before, yes. and she is actually your best friend from growing up, right? Yes, she's my best friend. We were messaging literally just before <laughs> I came on this call. So, yeah, so we're not to perpetuate stereotypes about Glaswegian Jews, but so she talked to us a lot about what it meant to be like a very online, very public Jewish person and to talk about Jewish pride in these online spaces. You are another one of those people, right? Like your Instagram is all about Jewish pride and and, and it's it's in your face in that way that you you think we should be doing. Like that that's the whole point of it. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that is like to live online in those spaces as such a proud Jew. What is that like? On one hand, it's amazing. I live in Hong Kong. My partner isn't Jewish. I'm surrounded by non-Jews. So the online community that I've formed has been really a lifeline. It's been absolutely incredible. And connecting with people all around the world, like your fine selves. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. I'm a Jew from Glasgow. I'm now living in Hong Kong. I'm speaking to all of you in New York. That's amazing. It's also really challenging because we get an enormous amount of hate. I get death threats. I have people sliding into my DMs, but not the fun way, telling me that they hope I get run over by a bus. That they, I mean, I had one message that said, I just want to let you know how much I despise you. And I was like, oh. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> and actually, my favorite was, you know, my name, as we discussed at the beginning, is Ben M. Freeman. And someone referred to me as Ben M. Dunman, which was quite Ooh. funny. Yeah, I know. Burn. So bad it's Sick good, burn. I think. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was quite funny. But I think it's, it is hard because you're often inundated with hate. And although the amazing thing is, and not amazing in the good way, is you see all of these kind of theories manifest. So when I first put out the photograph of me holding the book, on Twitter, I had two responses from the anti-Semites. One was from the left-wing anti-Semites who were saying, this is just white pride. And then the other response from the right-wing anti-Semites was saying, well, if you get Jewish pride, why can't we have white pride? So it's kind of amazing to see these things play out in real time. But yeah, it's hard, it's challenging, it's exhausting. I think being a public, being, I mean, I almost said a public figure, which makes me sound like- No, you are, uh, you totally an asshole. are. No, being someone with an Instagram account, let's be real, right? And a Twitter account, it's, uh, it can be really challenging. Because also people don't rate what you experience online as real. So when I tell people in my real life, whether it's here or at home, oh, this person said this to me, people often dismiss it because it's online, whereas it's, it can sting just as much as someone saying it to your face. But the overwhelming feeling is pride, is joy, is coming together and learning. You know, it's like as a Jew from Glasgow in Scotland, we had a pretty specific experience. So it's amazing to connect with Jewish people all over the world. So what are your Passover plans in Hong Kong this year? It's funny, I hate to cook with a burning passion. So my non-Jewish partner, he cooks. I choose the menu. We have like an Israeli cookbook and I send him off. So we're having a Seder, but I'm having it with non-Jewish people. I'm going to be the only Jewish person at my Seder. And I really love that. It's really beautiful. It's an amazing opportunity to share with these people who I love and to share a part of me and to share a part, not just of stuff that I did with my family, but also that we've been doing as a people for thousands of years. So we're going to do one night and yeah, we'll have chicken soup, obviously. I will make the chicken soup, I have to say. That's the one thing I do make. And lots of other yummy food. It's, as I said, I'm not religious. And I think that people, sometimes when people see the title, they think two things. They think about gay Jews specifically, or they think I'm asking people to be religious. And neither are true. It's about everyone finding their own way. The paths are many. The destination is one. What you want for people isn't necessarily that they say shahri in the morning. What you want for them is that they be proud, that they stake their ownership in this people. Yeah, absolutely. And also just to speak again about my gay experience, like I was so ashamed. I hated myself. And as you said, I think that there are elements of that within us as Jews. And I think that's a tragedy. 
but fundamentally it's not our fault and we have to start having these conversations and I do think that we as a, a community are pretty good at talking about our dead we talk about the Shoah we talk about the pogroms but we don't talk about the shame you know, we don't talk about what it feels like when someone is anti-Semitic to you, when someone kind of offends you, or when someone others you. We never talk about that, but it's real. And this book is not a fix-all. It's for our time period. It would have done nothing, really, f during the Shoah. It's not for a time when we're being murdered. It's a time now when we are facing rising anti-Semitism, and we're kind of at this point of, like, what the hell is happening? Because I think it's like the rug has been pulled out from under our feet. That's certainly what we felt in the UK with Corbyn. And how do we as a community respond internally? Because again, it's not our fault. Ben M. Freeman, the book is Jewish Pride, Rebuilding People next year in Jerusalem or somewhere we can be together with or you. Or Hong um, Kong. Or Absolutely. Hong Kong or Glasgow. Thank you so much for being part of our Passover special. Thank you so much for having me, everyone. All right, guys, 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 all right, you've eaten, you've eaten our vegetarian feast that your mother has made. We've had our matzo lasagna, and I know what you're ready for. You're ready for the flourless chocolate cake, and I know that you want to go find the afikoman. But before we do that, I have noticed in recent years that in our Haggadah, it does say that we're supposed to sing Hallel. But isn't that the thing that we do it in Shul on Chodesh? It's not a new month. Like, why why on Passover? So you're confused why we would sing Hallel on Passover? And I have to admit, I didn't grow up doing Hallel. I mean, the Seder had always completely fallen apart before we ever got to Hallel. Clara, Elizabeth, do you even know what Hallel is? No. David, do you know what Hallel is? Hallel. Oh, it's Hallel, or is it Challah? I gotta say, I never knew that Hallel was part of Pesach until a few years ago when I looked at the Siddur and I saw, oh my God, we're supposed to be singing Hallel? Let's hear from somebody who really knows. You certainly are not an expert. We're joined again by our favorite cantorial student. He's like this close to being a cantor. By the time you hear this, he may have the initials cantor after his name. He's been at Jewish Theological Seminary a long ass time, and he's ready to get out there and be the professional cantor at a shul near you. But he is our house cantorial student, Jacob Sandler. Soon to be Cantor Sandler, thanks for coming back to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really exciting. Every time I get an email from Sarah to, to be like, oh, look at this. I'm like the resident music-y person. It's really an honor and a, and a privilege. You're damn straight it is. You're damn straight it is. So listen, because you've got some skills that we don't have, I was talking to my kids and we were talking about how we never get through the whole Seder. And like a lot of Jews, we peter out. And, you know, we do a good bit of Seder. But if we start at 7, we're petering out by, certainly we're eating by 9, 9.30. And then we have dinner. And then maybe things come together for some afikoman action afterwards. But if you look in a Haggadah, including the beautifully illustrated tablets, Passover Haggadah, there's actually Hallel in there. Like, there's, all, there's a lot of melodies we never get to. There's songs that are apparently classics that I've never heard of. But I want you to teach us something new. And for my family, that new thing would actually be Hallel, which I know happens on the new moon. It happens once a month in Shul. And sometimes we sort of lean into the the room for that. So like, what is this Hallel and why is it relevant to the Seder? And can you teach even us to sing it? It's funny because I absolutely grew up in a similar family where we totally broke down after the festive meal, maybe Afi Komen. That, that all rings true to my experience. It wasn't really till I got into the professional Jewish music scene that I was... Uh, privy to these these secret tunes. We do Hallel on the festivals. It's a whole grouping of psalms. It's a really wonderful way to just celebrate how awesome God is. And I would absolutely love to teach you a melody that I really like, a melody that I that I wrote, which fits nicely over the um, the passage, Hodu Ladonai Kitov, Kile Olam Chasto, 
and the three lines that follow. And what does that mean for all of us? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord because he embodies goodness. His kindness is eternal. Forgive my pronouns. Now let Israel proclaim that God's kindness is eternal. Now let the house of Aaron proclaim that God's kindness is eternal. Now let those who revere the Lord proclaim that God's kindness is eternal. Give thanks to the Lord. Hodu Ladonai, Kitov. Say thanks, because it's good. <laughs> of course, in Hebrew, the big joke is that Hodu is also the name used for turkey. So it's uh, basically giving Adonai some turkey, which never fails to amuse you. Turkey for the Lord, for it is good. For it is good. That connection is so helpful on Thanksgiving. Yom Hodu, the day of Thanksgiving and or Turkey. We're doing deep work here. We're doing deep liturgical work on Unorthodox. So I will say I did not realize until we were making a Haggadah of our own that there is something that happens after the meal that isn't the Afikoman, that there are like tons more pages, tons more tunes. So I'm excited to learn this. I'm also just realizing now that this is going to be one of those days where we sing on the podcast. And I was not entirely prepared. Mm. I thought maybe like Jacob would sing it, but I feel like he's going to ask us to sing it. You didn't do your vocal warm up, Stephanie? No, 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 no. So let's, let's, let's do like a... Do 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 bum bum go do 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 Hum did he die? Hum did he die? Hum did he die? Hum did he die? Cool. Next part is. Hum did he die? 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 Yomar na Yisrael ki le'olam chasto. Hodu, hodu l'adonai ki tov ki le'olam chasto. Yomruna ve'taharon ki le'olam chasto. Hodu, hodu l'adonai ki tov ki le'olam chasto. Yomruna yire Adonai ki le'olam chasto. Jacob Sandler, 
Thank you for coming back to the show. We cannot wait for you to be a cantor. We cannot wait to hear what lucky stool, what lucky synagogue scoops you up. If people want more, where can they find you? That's a great question. Uh, I'm sort of on Instagram at Jacob Milk Music. I am more likely on Facebook as Jacob Milk Sandler, and my profile is very public, so you can probably find a lot that way. And like the Hallel, you're only available after a very good meal. Yes. People should go through all the effort to find you. I don't charge much, but you got to make brisket like mom used to make. Jacob, thank you so much and happy Passover. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me. Also, I wanted to say next year in Jerusalem. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. We also sell a pretty nifty Haggadah. You can go order it really fast at the uh, the web vendor or the local bookstore near you. We are produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman-Ader and Robert Scaramuccia. Our art director is Esther Werdiger. Our editor-in-chief is Alana Newhouse, and we don't say that enough. But a big toda rabah to the skipper of the bigger tablet ship, Alana Newhouse. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Our musical theme, the one you hear all the time, is by Golem, whom I once saw play a wedding. It was the wedding of Aaron Matz and Elaine Blair. And you know what? They're still married. So that's a good sign. If you need wedding music or any awesome Klez funk music, get in touch with Golem. You can write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. We always love hearing from you. And we wish you a Zissen Pesach, a happy holiday, a Pesach Sameach, a great Passover. May you be healthy, well, COVID-free, and enjoying your liberation. Shalom, friends. We ready? Can everyone join in close? We do it fast. Well, we'll boring when we do it Okay. Chad, God, yeah. God, yeah. Here, everyone needs to get right up to the microphone. Ready? Chad, God, yeah. God, yeah. My father bought me two zuzis. Chad, God, yeah. God, yeah. Then came the cat that ate the goat. My father bought for two zuzis. Chad, God, yeah. God, yeah. Then came the dog that bit the cat that ate the goat. My father bought for two zuzis. Hot god yeah, hot god yeah. A little slower. Then came the stick that beat the cat dog that beat the cat that 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 ate the goat. My father bought for two zuzis. Hot god yeah, hot god yeah. Okay, David, you want to say hot god yeah? Yeah, hot god, hot god.